The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, Damian Mason, your host, joined by my co-host and partner in the Business of Ag Success Group. His name is Todd Thurman. He is the proprietor of Swine Text Consulting, an animal livestock production consulting firm based out of Texas. He uh, used to, in a former life, travel to Asia about like you and I travel to the grocery store. It's been a little off the last two years. He also lived in Ukraine for a number of years working uh, in the in the swine consulta- consultation business. And formerly prior to that, I was with Cargill. He is, again, my co-host of the Business of Ag Success Group, a consortium and a networking, if you will, um, a group where we get together twice per month uh, via Zoom and bring in guest presenters to talk about how you can prosper in the future of agriculture. If you're interested in joining the Business of Ag Success Group, please do look me up, send me a message and email, uh, and we'll get you signed up. It's only $99 a month. We're not here to pitch the Business of Ag Success Group. Todd and I are here to talk about our topic. Our topic is very, very important to this industry. It's about population shifts and the fact that everything you've been told your whole entire life growing up in agriculture, going to feed a growing planet, going to be 9 billion people, going to be 11 billion people. We're all going to starve. I'm here to tell you that that is all 100% horse shit. We are not going to starve and we are not going to overpopulate the planet. And we have fresh data, me and Todd, that we are two of the only people in the business of agriculture that are actually telling you this. So you'll hear it here and you'll hear it almost nowhere else because you'll still go to ag meetings. They talk about got to keep making food, make more food in the next 10 years than we've made in the last 10,000 because we're all going to have 50 billion people. Not going to happen. Todd Thurman, welcome to the business of ag uh, program. Good to be back. And by the way, I should also tell her by frequent guest, frequent guest here. Okay, so population, you shared something this week. You and I are the only two people that I have ever worked with in agriculture that are telling the truth about population and how almost all of our parameters that we have been basing and predicating our business on are going to change remarkably and are already changing. So real quickly, the highlight, what your point was just this week, you shared it on LinkedIn. And of course I commented cause you and I come from the same uh, vantage point on this. Yeah. So the, the story was or the headline was that the U S had the slowest population growth in history. Um, and then the second part of the headline was, you know, attributing that to COVID. And, and I thought that that really missed the point. I mean, there is certainly a, a COVID aspect to this story, but the bigger picture is that this is a well-established trend that's been going on for some time. And, and like I've been saying since the beginning of the pandemic, that these crisis situations don't often create new trends, but they very often 
accelerate or exacerbate existing trend. And I think that really is the story that kind of got obscured by the COVID angle. So the story was saying, basically, we had very low population growth rate uh, in the U.S. this past year, something like 0.13%, well below a half a percent. And then the story was that, that the primary driver of that was lower immigration levels, and they linked that to uh, link that to COVID. But the reality is that we've been on a well-established trend, and that trend not only is, is continuing, it appears to be accelerating here in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. And so what we've been saying for the last several years, screaming from the rooftops that nobody uh, seems to be listening to, is not just true, but it seems like it's becoming more true every day. Not only more true, like you said, more exacerbated, it's happening at a really fast level. So here's the thing. So the person listening to this, I, I was being a little bit uh, facetious, but not really that much uh, in my intro, that every ag meeting you have been to, and it started when you and I were kids. I probably went to the, the implement dealership in Huntington, Indiana. I had a ham sandwich luncheon and we went there and listened to some ag guy or, or the Dairy Herd Improvement Association, of which we were members, would have an annual meeting and they'd bring in the radio ag guy, local guy, and he'd tell three canned jokes and tell us something about got to feed the world, you know, just keep making more people. Been hearing it our entire lives. And it is true that we feed the world, and it is true that the population has grown. We're sitting around 7.7 to 7.8 billion people on the planet of Earth right now. That's more than I've ever been. But also, it is not stagnated, but it has, the growth is almost stagnated. Um, th this push has been that the United Nations going to be 9 billion people, 9 billion people. And then the CEO of Elanco uh, jumped on this. I think it was about 10 years ago. Got to feed the nine. He became his whole slogan, feed the nine. And I started saying clear back then, I said, I don't think we're going to get to 9 billion people. If you look at the demographics, the more educated a society becomes, the more economically advanced a society becomes, the less children they have. And it happens promptly. Uh, you know, you don't go from like uh, spitting out nine kids the way my family does to then, oh, the next generation, they're all, all nine of those kids are going to have eight. No, those nine kids go to having one. So it, it slows down remarkably. And that's what's happening. And so, you're, you know, our listener might be saying, Damien, you know, all this population demographics, you've covered it before, clear back in episode 84 with that author of Empty Planet. Yes, I have. But why does this matter to ag? And I'm going to tell you because it changes every single, again, every single premise that we have ever had. I've used a lot of words, parameters, premise, precipice, whatever, uh, predication. Every single uh piece of objective, uh, shall I say, uh, looking to the future of agriculture has been predicated on massive population growth. And when that doesn't happen, it changes everything about what we do. Take me away from there, Todd. No, I, I agree. And I, I think it's, it's really a, a twin set of assumptions that are related to each other that we've built all of our systems on, um, all of our institutions on. And, and that is population growth, that there's going to be more potential customers tomorrow than there are today. And that has been a, a continuing, uh, you know, assumption that's been made and that there's going to be a limitation in our ability to meet the needs of those additional customers, right? Yeah. So, so they, obviously so those two things are related, but. So twin set was first off that population growth is never ending and that B was, we're not going to have enough resources to feed them. Right. So, so, so scarcity 
and, uh, you know, so limitation in supply and an expansion of demand. I mean, those are really what our systems are all, uh, like you said earlier, predicated upon. And and those fundamental changes um, that we're talking about in terms of population are going to have a major impact. You know, we already produce enough people to feed nine billion enough food to feed nine billion people. We just waste a lot of it and have trouble getting it to the people that need it. Um, so, so there's, there's certainly not going to be any limitation in our ability to produce food. Um, but the limitation is going to be, we're going to have fewer and fewer customers, consumers, um, starting really right now in some of the developed countries. And certainly that will be exacerbated, uh, as we get to mid century. I mean, there's a lot of disagreement on what exactly is going to happen and when, but the fundamental, uh, I think reality that people are beginning to kind of come around to is somewhere around mid-century we're going to peak you know we're going to peak at you know maybe it's nine billion maybe it's a little less than that maybe it's a little more than that i don't know but some somewhere around mid-century we're going to peak and we're going to begin declining between mid-century and the end of the century and by the time we get to uh 2100 you know which is you know seems like a long ways away but it's really not in the big scheme of things you're talking about you know less than 80 years away we're going to have substantially fewer people on this planet than we do today. Yeah, well, first off, 2100, the end of this century, at 78 years from now, I don't think that you and I'll be here. Uh, but there might be someone listening to this that's uh, fresh out of college, that's uh, that 22-year-old kid. They might very well be here. And even if they aren't, they're going to see a lot of these changes come to fruition. So, yeah, to kind of give you, dear listener and viewer, what we're talking about, this has been our whole lives. We've been told this about population growth will never, ever end. In fact, there's another reason I, I kicked off. This is a, a early 2022 podcast episode for a couple of reasons. Todd and I are the only two people in agriculture that are talking about this topic. I devote a lot of my speech to what this means for agriculture when I speak to an agricultural organization. Also, there's been two big headlines about it. The one that he shared was about the United States what it means for our demographics. We're going to get to that in a minute. Todd and I are going to talk about what it means for us demographically. And then right on the heels of his commentary about that, the Wall Street Journal, if you're watching, you're seeing this, I'm holding up the headline. If you're listening, I'm holding this up. This is the January uh, 4th, meaning Tuesday, January 4th, 2022 edition of the Wall Street Journal headline, Beijing targets low birth rate. So it's very, very on top of us right now. We're going to talk about China and the U.S., the demographics, what it means for us. But before I get into that, I want to point out another reason that I thought this was such a good topic. It's something I've been carrying on about for a long while, but also this is the year 2022. If you're a science fiction fan, there was a movie called Soylent Green that came out in 1973, 50 years ago, 49 actually. Uh, And it was very dystopian science fiction that stated that basically the, the whole premise of Soylent Green, if you've never seen it, was that in the year 2022, population control was going to be handled by massive government force using payloaders and uh, heavy-handed police uh, authority to break up mobs that were always rioting over food. The payloaders came in, scooped up the people, took them to a facility, and turned them into food. In other words, Soylent Green wasn't really made of soy. It was made of people. So that was all going to happen this year. We were all going to be overpopulated to the point where we're eating other humans in the year 2022. This was 49 years ago, and they really put this out there and it scared the hell out of a lot of folks. It's the year 2022. There are more people than have ever been on the planet. 
Todd's a, Todd would be a tasty character. I mean, if you're watching this, he's well fed. He's one of those Texas guys. He eats a lot of brisket. So if you were going to be starving, you'd you'd like get your fork and knife out. You'd go after Todd. He'd be uh, he'd be good vittles. But we don't want to eat Todd. We don't have to. As he pointed out, Todd, he said that we already grow enough food. We've got enough food on this uh, that we grow to feed more than we even have. The reason that folks are starving in the world is because of distribution issues and economic issues and or worse yet, warlords and uh, um, and uh, dictatorial situations where they use food as a weapon and starve the people into submission. Todd, I just carried on for a while there. So that's the big backdrop of why this is an important topic. You can take me to the next point. Yeah, and, and so I think just, just to drive home that point just a little bit more, um, you know, when we look at what we think is going to happen, uh, again, there's a lot of disagreement and, and, and people have different views. But as I'm looking at the data, it looks to me like there's probably upwards of 20 countries that are going to half in population between now and 2100. Okay. And that's pretty well accepted, I think, in the, in, in the scientific community at this point. And those are not, you know, minor countries. We're talking about countries like Japan, China, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Thailand, South mm-hmm. Korea. I mean, a lot of these countries are major countries that we think of as heavily populated, right? And yeah, so, you know, and, and it's not just go ahead. Yeah. And it's not it's not just that. It's it's almost every country in the world has a, re, a fertility rate that's below re, replacement rate. 183 out of 195 countries in the world have a currently have a replacement rate or a, a fertility rate that's below 2.1. So 2.1 is widely considered to be the the required fertility rate for you know replacement to maintain the status quo. And yeah, so, so we're talking this, about this, very widespread. Let's back up on that just for a second to the person listening to this, because, you know, Todd and I are just coming this, uh, you know, some opinion off our ass. This is this is this is stuff, the real data that we read and we see again. And we're both roughly the same age coming at this, that this challenged everyone's thinking. When I when I tell people that challenge their thing, it challenged my thinking. But I was one of the early ones looked at and said, wait a minute. Spain has a fertility rate of one point four. This was a decade ago when I saw this. Italy has a fertility rate, a birth rate, if you will, 1.2. And again, dear listener, what that means is it takes 2.1 babies per woman. You can get into the politics of it, but it still requires a woman to have a baby. I don't care about what bathroom you go to or what you believe you are. It takes a female. It takes a female to make a to reproduce. It takes 2.1 babies per female to break even. All these countries we're talking about have fertility rates that are well below 2.1, we're talking the low ones, like 1.3, 1.4. China has a fertility rate of 1.3. The United States of America, five years ago, was 1.7. We only have a growth in the United States of America, as Todd was pointing out. What's our growth, our population growth in the year 2021 was going to be about? 0.1%, yeah, less than half a percent. Yeah, one-tenth of a percent growth rate in a country of 330 million. So when Todd's saying that these, these are 183 of 195 nations in the world have a fertility rate, a birth rate that is below the 2.1. Some of them significantly below, like the Western Europe, China, United States, mostly all of the developed countries. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't live in Africa, the chances are almost 100% that you live in a country with a declining population, with a, a, a birth rate or a fertility rate below 2.1. Yeah. Not, now, that doesn't mean declining population yet. So go ahead and explain that a little bit, because that's why we you and I are putting it out there. Now, you keep saying end of the century. 
I think it's going to be happening like in the next 20 years, uh, in the next five yeah. to 20 years. So it's not, it's not declining right now. Kind of give us some feed on that. Yeah. So we're start we're going to start to see that peak again around mid-century, but we're going to begin to start feeling the effects of that very well. We already are um, beginning to feel the effects of that. And you're starting to see more and more, attention being paid to this. And I think you're going to see more and more of this as we move forward, but especially in these countries that we're talking about with extremely low fertility rates, many of those countries have already passed the point of no return, right? So you're, you're not going to be able to go back in time and, and have people, you know, have babies five, 10 years ago, right? So the only potential changes that you can have at this point is an increase in fertility rate. And, and, you know, some people are a lot more optimistic than I am on that, but I see very little reason to be optimistic that a government program is going to incentivize people to have more babies. I'm just, there's very little in the way of evidence that that's going to be successful. I mean, and some of the success cases are so modest that, you know, it wouldn't even be close to enough to reverse the trend anyway. So um, if, if that, if you're banking on government policies, reversing this trend, First of all, we're still going to have a problem because we created a gap here that cannot possibly be filled. And then second of all, I would encourage you to be less optimistic about the success of those uh, incentive programs. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see population uh, or fertility rate decline. So it's going to continue to exacerbate the problem. Yeah. So going back to now, there are folks listening saying, all right, so uh, what's this mean for ag? Well, again, it's pretty simple. Less all of our entire premises have been set on we're going to struggle to produce food, which we really don't anymore. Uh, and we're going to have increasing amounts of demand. Now, imagine that demand doesn't continue to increase. It will for the short term, the next five, 10 years. But honestly, it, it's going to take it's going to happen a lot faster than people realize. We're going to have less demand and we're going to still presumably be even better at making crops. So you can say, all right, what does it mean? Well, first off, there is a big push. The article in the Wall Street talks about this. Since China, China thought they were going to overpopulate 40 years ago, they instituted a one-child policy. Terribly uh, barbaric in some cases. They forced women to have abortions. Uh, they, they beat and imprisoned couples that would not, that defied the one-child policy in, in different provinces. Terrible things were done. Uh, some women would kill their, their infant child if it was a girl because they wanted to pass along the family name, which changes the whole demographic then in China that's going to end up having a distortion of male to female uh, births. And they did, which is currently the condition. Um, then they came up with a two-child policy six years ago. They said, oh, crap, our entire strength is predicated on us having uh, more numbers. And our numbers aren't there. Our strength in numbers are our numbers. And then they said, oh, two-child six years ago. Last year, they said, you don't want to have all as many children as you want. Well, now what China is doing is encouraging. Now, in a totalitarian country like China, encouraging might be the same heavy-handed tactics they used 40 years ago against population growth. What if then it becomes, we're going to start breeding you? Uh, and I, I, this sounds silly. And people are like, oh, damn, it'll happen. Well, it was only in the 80s and 90s that they were imprisoning and beating and forcing abortions onto women if they defied this rule. So why would it be a far-fetched that in the year 2022, that same country would now be forcing pregnancies because they realize that they're going to have this demographic shift. And you'd say, why do they care? Well, again, that country's strength is its numbers. So, and also a lot of governments are 
they've relied just like ag. The only way that they continue to exist is by having more people. So government a lot of times needs more people, the same that ag does in terms of its its base. Go ahead, Todd. Your thoughts. Yeah, and I, I think I think ag is gonna fill the brunt of a lot of these changes because again, we're so dependent on these these pillars of, of our strategy moving forward, that population can continue to grow and that we're going to struggle to meet the demand. Right. And, and neither of those things are going to be true anymore. And so all of our systems that we've established are going to have to be adjusted. And, and that's going to be, you know, history would tell us probably a painful process, but if you take a step back, most of our political systems are built on that assumption as well. I mean, whether you're talking about the communist system in China or the capitalist system in the U S or even, even a um, more, uh, you know, social uh, socialist type mentality uh, income distributive uh, strategy, like they have in Europe, um, all of those, systems are still ultimately predicated on the fact that you have younger workers to finance older retirees. And so social, not social, only- secur- social security, Todd, that has been invented by the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration in the 1930s under the great, uh, the, the new deal uh, was absolutely based on a premise that you are going to have more young people coming in. Population growth is going to continue. And so therefore we can spend money we don't have today thinking that there's going to be a population swell coming that will continue to fill it. That's a, that has been the thought. I'm not sure thought's the right word. The policy of Washington, DC for about a hundred years now. Well, and, and even today there is literally zero political will to address any of those issues. I mean, the one thing that no politician on either side of the aisle wants to tackle is Social Security and Medicare. You know, these two beasts that everybody knows are there, you know, and and and, and, and there's a challenge there, even if we didn't have population decline, right? right? Uh, there's a challenge there because there's just not enough money. It's, it's, it's going to go, you know, it's going to go insolvent anyway, but this is just going to exacerbate the problem. And, and I think a lot of people are looking at this and say, well, in the, in the short and medium term, not such a huge problem for us because we can just increase our immigration. Well, you know, that is a potential short-term solution for developed countries that are attractive destinations for, for people from developing countries. But, you know, that's far from a uh, politically easy solution also. But even if we are able to uh, make those necessary changes, that will help in the short and medium term. But in the long term, the, the places that these immigrants are coming from are having population decline issues as well. I mean, if you go look at Mexico, the actual net immigration from Mexico has been declining for the past 10 or 15 years. And it will continue to decline because they have essentially the same issue that we have. There are, everybody's at a different stage of development in terms of this population decline. But aside from Africa, every country in the world is dealing with this issue. And so the places that we're going to go get immigrants are dealing with the same issue that we're going to deal with. And so, yeah, in the, in the, in the near term, we can go to some of these places that are not quite as attractive, don't have as many economic opportunities and bring those immigrants in to help fill these jobs. But if you think we've got a, a problem right now with, with filling these jobs in agriculture, manufacturing, truck driving, some of these you know, key problems that have been again, exacerbated by COVID, there is a long-term trend. This is a, this is a view of the future, not a temporary blip. Okay, so uh, first off, everything brilliant, absolutely dead on. Um, 
And, and we are talking to ag people that they've never even considered this unless they've heard you or me talk about it. Um, yeah, Mexico, we're already seeing less immigration come from Mexico, which is why, again, we talk about these caravans. They were coming from more impoverished uh, countries further into Latin America, the Guatemalas, Nicaraguas, whatever. Uh, that's going to continue because, again, Mexico uh, doesn't have the problems that some of those even lesser developed, uh, more economically uh, troubled nations. So their people are more willing to move here. But like you said, when it gets to where almost all these countries don't have a population excess, they have a population decline, they're going to start saying, well, we kind of need to hold on to our people or even our economy, which is not that great, needs everybody here. That's one thing, because let's talk about, you know, the average person, you know, in agriculture saying, all right, Damien, I'm, I'm buying into what you and Todd are telling me. And, I, and I, I'm st- they still aren't going to believe us because they've they've been to too many ag meetings about feed the world. We're going to overpopulate. But those that are listening that are good thinkers, you know, and that's most of our listeners here. They're saying, all right, I, I believe what you and Todd are saying is, is accurate. What's it mean for us? Well, we just Todd just highlighted one. We're going to go further to find workers. Agriculture still uses a boatload. I talk about it in my book, Food Fear. 70% of our, uh, it's it's an amazing number. 70% of our hands-on are foreign born. And I'm talking about tree fruits and nuts and produce and livestock and meat processing. That's essentially where we, we don't need a lot of labor or certainly even worry about immigrant labor to, uh, to drive a combine. You can still grow a lot of soybeans, you know, without a lot of people. But all of the industry uses a lot of hands and we tend to be the biggest user of immigrant labor. We in agriculture are. Agriculture and food, food processing. And certainly by the time you get to food prep, uh, that becomes very much that. Well, we will have a shortage of workers. We already do. There's another thing that this means for us. It means we have less consumers. We've already covered that means that we don't need as many soybeans down the road at some point. We will for a short while because of growth, but also because soybeans are fed to livestock, livestock uh, meat consumption goes up as economics go up. So that all works in our favor. But there's another biggie. Our product mix is going to change. What do you see happening? You said in your uh, post, uh, Todd, what's the demographic look like 10 years from now, not 100, 10 years from now that we're not even thinking about? Yeah, so basically what's happening is kind of the side effects of this overall population decline is that we're having shifts in, in demographics. And so the consumers, we're having we're going to have fewer consumers moving forward, and the consumers we do have are going to be different than they are today. And so, you know, the fastest growing demographic group in the United States is single elderly women, right? And so... You know, if we think about that, and I, I got challenged on on one of my uh, my LinkedIn posts, and my response was, you know, this is the fastest growing demographic group in the country. When's the last time you saw a food ad targeted to that group? I mean, I, I can't think of any time I've ever seen right. a food ad targeted to that group. But they have very different needs. You know, an older population, um, older people have you know smaller portion sizes, right? They tend to prefer you know uh, more tender cuts and uh, you know more ground cuts you know, for fairly obvious reasons, you know, and women, whether smaller, they're elderly smaller, not, smaller packaging, you know, again, I just saw, I, I stopped at grocery last evening and I saw someone that I'm like, Oh, there's an old person, which I'm sure they're looking at me. Sam, you know? So someone to say 70 some, they're not buying gallons 
of milk. They're probably not buying milk at all, frankly. You know, old people get away from milk consumption. Old people get away from cereal consumption. Old people get away from a lot of package. You know, it becomes about convenience, but not the same kind of convenience stuff that Todd's teenage kids might eat. It's it's a remarkable product change mix that we're talking about, which we will respond to, but it also changes even at the farm level, the crap we make, right? Yeah, we're, we're still obsessed with this mom that has three kids that's going out every week to Costco and buying big packages of things to feed her growing family, right? And, and that's just becoming less and less true. So that target demographic is, is going to change. And we're going to make those adjustments, but those adjustments are going to kind of sneak up on us, I'm afraid, because we're not really planning for that. We're not really, you know, it creates an opportunity for, for companies and producers to kind of see what that means. I don't know fully what that means, but I do know that it's a lot different. I do know that an older, more female population is going to have much different needs and much different consumer demands than this 18 to 34 demographic that we've you know been continuously focusing on over the past 50 years in this country so By the that's way, something that we can make an adjustment to but Dad, we're, we're not having that schedule Dad's not making any judgment about the male-female thing. It's just that uh, females still outlive males by about 7.2 years. So, again, uh, that's why there's going to be more, more of them. Now, that I hope this is a benefit. It used to be that we had a more female t- tip to the balance because, first off, uh, the, the born that way and, you know, the way that – we tend to have more female babies than males. If you were going to make a bet on what the kid's going to be, it's like a 51 49. And then also males tend to uh, do more risky, stupid things to get them killed, uh, especially between ages 16 and 25. And then also we used to have a lot of wars. Uh, right now we're not having the wars, thank goodness. So it could balance some of that out. But as you say, we still are looking at a more female demographic and older demographic real quickie that something I've been sharing with my audiences, my numbers are within six months. So um the year I was born, 1969, median age in the United States of America was around 27, meaning half of the population was above 27, half of the population was below 27 years old. Uh, last year, uh, about 38. We've aged about a decade as a country just in the last half century. So again, when Todd and I are looking out to the year 2050, you know, you're saying that's 30 years down the road, we could be a median age of like 45 and again, you're saying, well, that doesn't seem that old. Well, think of everyone, half of the people that are older than that and what they consume, what their products mix are when they go to the grocery store, they might eat out more. Think about all the changes that means. They might eat out less, uh, you know, more Shoney's buffets. Hell, I don't know, more, more dinners being consumed at 4 p.m. on the Blue Plate special. I don't know, Todd, what else we got? Well, and I think the one other thing that I don't think I've heard many people talking about is, you know, some people have talked about Japan as an example of what this might look like because they're current, sort of a, ahead of the curve here. Uh, Russia is another, you know, example. It's a little bit different. Uh, some of the drivers behind that are a little bit different, uh, but they're, f- you know, fairly far down this uh, demographic spiral or whatever. But that's all happened in a global context where population is still increasing, right? And so we're in very much a global economy that's becoming you know, less true, it seems, as a, as a side effect of the, the pandemic and whether or not that is a permanent trend or not, I think it's debatable. But the reality is, in agriculture, we're very dependent on international markets. 
you start thinking about um, as a producer, we've talked, you know, time and time again about how you can't get away from discussing China because it's a huge part of the market. I'm in the pork industry. They consume half the pigs in the world. Right. Well, if the population of China is going to decline by a factor of, you know, you know, half over the next uh, 80 years, you know, that's a major issue, right? It's not only domestic consumers that we have to be concerned about. It's our international consumers are going away too. And so, you know, unless we're going to try to, you know, make that pivot, which we definitely should towards focusing on consumers in Africa, that's the only place we have to grow. And so the overall uh, shift is happening at such a widespread basis that globally it's going to have a, a, a domino effect. And, and so it's not just one country having an isolated issue and, and Japan can just start exporting a lot of the stuff that they produce because everybody else still has plenty of people when everybody else is dealing with the same issue. Now you have a lot different problem. I know um, I will keep bringing it back to ag and our friends in ag and, and they're going to say, what's this mean for me? Well, I know that the first response uh, is going to be because Ag people like to make stuff, especially here in the United States. We want to keep making pork and keep growing soybeans and doing the things that we're really good at. Because, you know, I just like the guy who is really good at bench pressing. By God, when he goes to the gym, he'll bench press and bench press and bench press. His, his legs are like, you know, the size of my pen. But was, we're that way in ag. We just love to make food and make, make corn and soybeans and wheat and all that. So what we're going to do is say, well, if this is true and Africa is the only continent that's got a bunch that's actually growing in population, we'd ought to start selling everything to Africa. Todd, tell our dear listeners why that is not going to be a solution for North American agriculture. Well, that, that can be part of the solution. It's definitely in the in the medium term, in the near term, is something we need to be focused on. But the reality is, is that they can't replace what what we're losing right so well, there's, no another, the there's another economic reality that uh, we don't like to admit if we we can ship barges and stuff to every country in africa half of them we'd never get paid from because the reason they, they are growing in population but they are also the most food insecure places on earth not because we don't have the food to ship to them they don't have the money to pay for it well, and, and, that, and that's a, a, it's an important point. And if you start looking at, at China and the reason China became so important to us as an export destination in a fairly short period of time, it's not just because they have a huge population, because it has they have a huge population of people that can all of a sudden afford to eat the kind of food that we produce. Right. And so that's that's an issue as well. And, and as you look at at Africa. Now, we we think that certain places in Africa, you know, that's going to we're going to see a similar you know, shift in terms of, of an increasing middle class. And so, but, you know, that's not the panacea that it might appear to be because um, they have a long ways to go to close that gap. Give me a couple of uh, your predictions and I'll share mine. Um, what it means for us in ag in North America. And again, it, it, this year, 2022, does it mean we're going to all of a sudden not need to grow crops? No, doesn't mean that. Go one five, 10, 20 years down the road. I'll give you a couple of examples. We've got our buddy, Andy, organic farmer. Um, I, I oppose the marketing of organic saying it's more healthy, but in terms of a product category, there's more room for organic in a world that doesn't continually have to have massive amounts of commodity food because we have less people, fewer people. So I think that things like niche categories, um, more obscure food categories, more value added, all of a sudden uh, flax, um, uh, you know, these sort of things that you've never heard that much about. 
kale was the hot food item. Those things are going to have more ability in a world that has less push for make me as many calories as cheaply as possible. So I'd say that the organic and the specialty and the niche categories probably have more opportunity moving forward because we're not going to be squeezed out by, damn it, we need those acres for more soybeans. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. And I think we need to understand what that really means and what those what those opportunities are. As people get uh, more disposable income, they tend to want to focus on higher quality and more variety in their diets, right? So, and we see that across cultures, we see that around the world. So I I think we're going to continue to see that. Um, And so I think that's definitely something that we need to be focused on. And I think it really gets back to really paying attention to that consumer and listening to what that consumer is telling us and try to try to meet those demands as we move forward. And just a shift away from a commodity mindset. I think, you know, really that's fundamentally what we're talking about is that, that the commodity mindset has been predominant for, you know, really arguably forever here in American agriculture. And that, that, influence of commodity, that commodity mindset is going to wane over the next several years. And I think as we see in every other aspect of business, the people that understand that trend, identify that trend and start making those adjustments sooner tend to be uh, more successful um, and position themselves for, for longer term success. So I think there's a huge opportunity here. You know, I mean, I get a lot of feedback from people in the ag community. So are you, you optimistic or pessimistic? And, and I'm really neither. I, I'm optimistic for people that make that adjustment. And if we can address some of these challenges in a proactive way, I'm very optimistic. If we fail to do that, then I become uh, pessimistic, I think, about the future of American agriculture. So it just depends on what we decide to do about it. Well, uh, again, usually uh, government policy is the worst thing. It's generally it's generally uh, the free market and the private sector that that makes the adjustment. Anyhow, um, you spoke about government incentives to increase population. You know, that horse left the barn is, is what you're pointing out. Again, a place like China, I see them being very heavy handed and they'll be lining up poor women and putting them in, you know, farrowing crates. I, I mean, that sounds a little gr- gross here, but I, that's about what I see happening. If they really think that this is going to threaten their ability to overtake the United States of America, which is their goal, they are going to start doing forced breeding and reproduction. It'll start with money. We'll give you money to have kids, which by the way, we're doing that in the United States. We are doing that right now. So the idea that we're going to grow our population, we created a child tax credit, which is not really a credit. They give you money. The numbers are such that if you make about $112,000 to $150,000 as a household, which is a pretty good amount of money, you're still eligible to get $3,600 to $3,000 per kid, $300 plus $300 per month to have a a kid. So we are right now incentivizing child production in the United States of America. So, of course, in places, other countries, they're doing this as well. It doesn't seem to make the population go up. So the reality is we're going to adjust. Um, What's also well, and, and, and when I was living in Russia, they were literally and still are literally paying people to have babies and not an insignificant amount of money. I think the, the second baby, you got ten thousand dollars, you know, and that's probably gone up. This has been quite a quite a, a long time since I was. And there. it's still but, until it becomes like two million dollars. It's not been enough to really change things. Uh, the, well, and it's it's the, the economic reality there is that you're trying to incentivize somebody to spend $200,000 by giving them $10,000. And, you know, even idiots will figure out that that's a, that doesn't pencil out in the long term. So 
um, you know, to, to really to really incentivize to um, the amount of money that would be required to really incentivize a, a significant change in the fertility rate is just beyond the ability of basically any government in the world. So bringing back some of our predictions about what this means for ag, um, you know, because does it mean this month? No. Does it mean next year? Maybe not. But for certain five years, a lot of problems fix themselves. And I'll give you another one. Highly erodible land. Um, we're going to see more things get enrolled into CRP. Now, I, I hope. I think the government will be there to talk about incentivizing. If you don't need as much raw production, some of these acres that are just really marginal, they tend to come in and out of production with cycles. You know, $7 corn will bring it in, uh, $3 corn, it sits idle. Um, we're not talking about the great stuff that's, you know, out my back door in, in Indiana or Iowa or whatever. We're talking about the marginal stuff. I think that stuff might go away on a more permanent basis 20 years from now if we don't need those acres. Um, the environmentalist against deforestation that's happening in Brazil, that's uh, been based on population growth. Brazil itself is not growing anymore. They've got a now 2.1 or less replacement rate in their country. Um, they still export a lot. But again, if these things happen, I think a lot of problems, environmental problems, fix themselves. And it won't be because of the bazillion environmental groups lobbying for regulation. It'll just be because the demographics changed. Well, and I think that's what you're going to see is, is a is a really strange from a politically uh, political standpoint, a really strange push pull, because, I mean, I think, you know, generally what uh, the environmentalists would be encouraging this population decline. But it creates some real political realities that are that are, you know, uh, that are creating going to create some strange bedfellows, I guess, as, as we move forward. So, yeah, it, it does solve some problems. It, it does. Uh, create some opportunities. I think the the issue there is taking advantage of those opportunities will require rethinking a lot of the approaches that we've taken in the past. And, and you know, whether or not we're able to make that adjustment um, before it becomes very painful, I think will be the big question. But I, I think regardless of whether we, you know, as a globe handle this situation very well, or we handle it poorly, this is going to be the number one story over the next eight years. I mean, this is going to be the number one news story. There's no doubt in my mind. And it's going to drive almost all of these other ones. Even right now, a lot of these issues that we're talking about have roots in, in this problem, in this issue. You know, we've talked a lot about immigration. Of, mm -hmm. You know, uh, the solution to immigration, the, the, the challenges that we have with labor shortages, we're just getting a preview. We, we've been blessed in some ways with a preview of what's to come. And if we don't take that opportunity to make some adjustments now, when it's you know, less painful, then we're going to regret it in the future. Yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, we thought this was COVID related. But as you said, this is nothing more than the exacerbated stuff that was already happening or made it more, you know, it kind of picked the scab open and started letting the, the pus and blood come out. And you're like, oh, crap, this is this is this is getting uglier than I thought. Uh, last thought on uh, the population thing that you and I both uh, are out here telling ag. I got my last thought on it. You tell me your last thought on it before we close out the door here. You're an, yeah, agricultural, so I, I, you're an agricultural person. What should they take away from it? Yeah, so I think it's just, it's really right now, it's about, you know, challenging your assumptions and, and saying, okay, if we look at our business plan over the next five or 10 years, and if you don't have a longer term business plan, you should, 
Um, but as you look at a 10 year business plan, you know, what does that mean to us? What, you know, if what these guys are saying is true, then what does that mean to us? And start looking at those fundamental assumptions that you're making in your business planning and, and imagine a scenario when those are no longer true. And, and that thought process will, will lead to sort of a, uh, a shift in mindset that I think is, is really necessary, but we have to have these conversations. We have to start entertaining the possibility that, that these systems that we've established over the past hundred years are not going to serve us very well in the next hundred years. And so what does that look like? What does that mean? And what are those alternatives? And if we can make those adjustments again, you know, earlier as opposed to later, then those adjustments are going to be less painful and, and more effective. And so as we look at industries and we look at businesses, we need to be thinking about this, the future in the context of this population decline. And what does that really mean? So I just encourage you, whether you believe what, what uh, Damien and I are saying right now or not, what if we're, what if we're right? What does that mean? Think through that. Um, and, and, and start really thinking about what does that mean for your industry? What does that mean for your uh, business? And what does that mean for the, for the future potential that you have? I agree with all that. I'll throw in uh, a consideration that an older demographic, which I just gave you the data, you can go and check my stuff. If you don't believe it. We're already older, older as a country than we've ever been. And that's going to continue to be the story. Older demographic, probably a little bit more well off because the 45 year old consumer tends to have a touch more discretionary income than the 25 year old customer. Um, uh, marginal land is going to have a struggle um, because there's going to be less push for it. And then I'll throw another one at you. If this happening the world over, which it is, 183 out of 195 countries are at a negative fertility rate, um, not negative, meaning they're not in a replacement fertility rate. What if, what if your country's up and coming prominence and power has been really seized by being a producer of commodities, which has happened a lot in the last 20 years? We talk about Brazil, but Brazil, Argentina, even India, Australia, several of the countries that you're familiar with in the uh, former Soviet Union, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, whatever, Ukraine, those countries got a lot of economic power out of becoming commodity producers that they became good at really only in about the last 10 or 15 years when we had the big commodity run starting in 06 through about 013. Well, what if all of a sudden they're facing less demand? The whole globe is facing less demand because there's less people 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Are they going to be in a hurry to relinquish their economic prowess that is gained by agricultural production? Hell no. So then it becomes a bidding war. So a commodities business, which is already kind of hoard down to cents per bushel, stays that way because those countries will continue to be producers, kind of like China's steel or Russia's oil. They'll produce it even at a damn break even just because it can. it's, it's what gave them some economic clout globally. Yep, that's right. So you and I both uh, gave our predictions about what all this means. His name is Todd Thurman. You can check him out on LinkedIn. He's got brilliant stuff. Half that he steals from me. Okay, not half. It's just more that we share with one another. He's my partner with the Business of Ag Success Group, uh, a network for ag professionals. If you'd like to join, send me an email. It's only $99 a month. We meet twice a month on Zoom calls. We have guest presenters. We talk about stuff like this and what it means for everybody in our group. Also, you can share ideas with the other uh, 20 people that are in the group, and uh, you'll get some good stuff from that. Uh, Todd Thurman's a, a proprietor of Swine Tech. So you can go to, what is it, swinetechs.com? Okay. 
swinetext.com to find him. Until next time, it's the best of agriculture. Thank you, my friend. Thanks a lot for having me. This episode of The Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with recreation access network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com slash BOA, as in Business of Agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com slash BOA. Thank you.